0: Since launch, you know, we're just crossing our three-year anniversary, where I think our first year anniversary was like 60,000 in assets. Uh, We entered 2020 with two and a half million in assets. 2021 started with 40 million in assets, and now we're at 400.
1: Welcome to Generational Arbitrage. I'm Tyler Neville. I'm sitting down with Rain Steinberg, the CEO of Arca. Arca is an institutional-grade financial services firm building products for investing in digital assets. And Rain has a really, really interesting background because he actually co-founded uh, Wisdom Tree, which is pretty much one of the largest ETF providers in public markets. And he left one of the most scalable businesses on the planet for for this opportunity at ARCA. So I'd love to get your background um, and kind of walk us
0: through how you got to ARCA and founded that. Sure. And thanks for having me, Tyler. Really excited about this um, and yes, um, I did leave uh, Wisdom Tree uh, quite a while ago. Um, not quite uh, the straight path um, and in directly identifying ARCA. Um, but the interesting thing I think about Wisdom Tree as it informs what we're doing at ARCA, and as you said, we're an institutional grade asset manager for digital assets, is uh, the Wisdom Tree thesis. Uh, when uh, me and my brother founded it in the early 2000s, uh, was that the ETF wrapper was going to be a transformative wrapper. Uh, very important, disruptive in financial services. Um, iShares at the time um, was gathering a lot of assets and then there was the spider and there wasn't really anything else. And the conventional wisdom on Wall Street was that there wasn't really anything else to do with ETFs. There were about $40 billion under management and that was it. iShares had locked up that intellectual property, you know, MSCI, Dow, S&P, and there were no other indexes. So that's it. That's what ETFs were going to be. Um, our thesis was um, we thought we could create a differentiated index family, um, make it slightly heroic or you know differentiated, not just beta track the market. We kind of invented the idea of smart beta, beta or um, you know enhanced indexing, and could this create a value proposition um, and create a differentiated type of product? And you probably needed a new type of asset management company to do it. Um, and all of these things uh, did play out. Um, ETFs you know, became ascendant, um, passive indexing gained a lot of traction. The one part of our thesis, which also informs what we're doing at ARCA that was completely incorrect was we thought traditional asset managers were gonna be interested in what we were doing at WisdomTree. Uh, we had 200 hard passes um, on the WisdomTree business all the way up to systemically important banks, um, all pretty much the same uh, objection not wanting to cannibalize their high fee business. Um, and nobody wants to cannibalize their high fee business, but it really doesn't take like a, a very prescient person to see that perhaps somebody else might come with low fee product. And you know, for $7 million, might you not want an option call on, on that type of thing? The answer was no. Um, but that space and that resistance actually allowed Wisdom Tree to form. And I think there's that same opportunity here at ARCAN and Digital Assets Financial services are the things that are most probably impacted directly by blockchain and the disruptive nature of, you know, dis- disaggregating trust and all the interesting things that are going on there. Um, they are specifically the ones that would probably be best to do this with their distribution, understanding of clients, the money, all of these things. But th- that's not where the activity is. Um, and it's similar. I mean, this is a group that couldn't get behind low fee investor friendly product on something like ETFs in the early 2000s and we see where that's gone it's very hard to think that they're all going to be the differentiators and the disruptors um, in digital assets
1: that's a super fascinating history cuz i lived part of that which is at a giant long only <laughs> where we were we were an actively managed fund and missed out on buying pretty much every fast growing etf provider which you know is is really synopsizes the macro picture of of markets in general. Is like that, you know, whether it's Uber cutting fees on taxis or or passive cutting fees on active, um, and yeah. now digital assets on on you know public public securities. So, um, talk to me about um, now that we're on the subject. Your you know why can't these big institutions? You're getting ahead of the game. Why can't these big institutions kind of like take the ARCA playbook and run it? Is it too bureaucratic or they
0: just don't know the the industry? There's a few things there. First of all, uh, people underestimate um, the issues with the lack of clarity around regulatory, legal, and things like that. Um, These big institutions are, and appropriately so, incredibly risk averse, um, have huge amounts of assets on the other side of the balance sheet the opportunity, even as big and exciting as it is in digital assets, um, has only just reached a size of economic viability to even be addressed. And you really have to believe that the thesis is going to continue to expand uh, for you to want to address it. So only recently has it gotten big enough to even think about for those guys. And then the the nature of this space, digital assets that is crypto, it kind of explodes our traditional regulatory and jurisdictional Frameworks. So, where you used to be segregated by natural geography, you couldn't, you know, trade stocks just randomly between me and you. You had to be on exchanges. All these structures that kind of kept things on their guardrails and in their, you know, their regulatory frameworks are blown apart um, by digital assets. You see people like venture that are exposed to unregistered securities offerings. So there's a whole bunch of things going on that make it difficult on a legal and regulatory just to jump in. And so there's very much like a wait and see until these type of things, um, you know, shake out. And then there's really a very big process um, and innovation mode here. Um, We talked about, you know, the, the move to passive indexing and what that's done to act. What's interesting in digital assets, it is reinvigorated active investing because all the metrics and all the things um, you know, that are being invented that, you know, the portfolio team like Jeff are doing, they don't exist. There is no Graham and Dodd. There is no set valuation. So these things all have to be invented. The operational footprints have to be invented. Um, there's really, really innovative, difficult things to do there. And then and then there's no bench, really, of people to do them. Um, all the people on the asset management side and financial services uh, really were early. Um, you know, they may have made a lot of, bit of money in Bitcoin. But not necessarily in creating institutional-grade products or embracing things like regulation or fiduciary duty or those type of things that are well understood in financial services, but not really well understood here. So it's very difficult to do. There's a perceived and real regulatory and legal uh, danger out there. And then I would say of all those things, the biggest one is the same one we um, kind of ran into at Wisdom Tree: um, the innovation. And whole value position of blockchain and digital assets is to destroy that trust premium, um, and you know do what all the disruptors have done. It's very hard, you know, at a company like this where you have maybe a hundred thousand employees to be like, we're going to go very, very deep into something that is going to destroy eighty thousand of these jobs. Yeah. Uh, it, that's it's hard to do, um, yeah. both actually and like spiritually. So those things I think make it just really hard for these guys to do. And, and therein lies the the huge
1: arbitrage and opportunity. Um, yeah. Can you talk about your team specifically? Because like I was shocked. Like, So I worked previously with one of the guys that recently started ARCA, um, Matt Hepler, at, at an activist fund in um, in San Francisco. And he was one of the smartest guys I ever worked with. Like this guy was like light years ahead of everybody else. You're building a team there that's just incredible. And, and I've said previously, one of my newsletters, like if you are a giant institution that's looking for yield and access into this ecosystem, you guys are the, the guys you give money to. Um, and you guys are not sponsoring this just so, just so everybody does. But like, can you walk through kind of the people on your team
0: and, and what they've sure. done in the past to give everyone a- Yeah, a- absolutely. And you, you couldn't be more correct and I would say the, mo- the thing I'm most proud of and the thing I think that differentiates us the most is really the team. Um, and th- when I, my expertise is distribution and, uh, early stage company and things like that. I, there was, there would be no capability for me to do this at all. Not even close, um, without this type of team. And, um, I'll take you through the other two founders and then some key personnel that really. Really round out what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. So my two founders, co-founders, are Jeff Dorman um, and Phil Liu. Uh, Jeff Dorman is our CIO. He's responsible for the investment practice of the firm. Um, You know, he's run and launched the digital asset fund, which is now you know closing in on four hundred million under management. Um, This was an idea that was started in twenty eighteen with $30,000 of GB capital um, and the idea that we were gonna make an institutional grade fund that was not focused on Bitcoin, um, that was focused on what was happening in this space, Bitcoin being one thing, but it was not the only thing. And these this was just one of many innovations that we thought were going to happen. Um, so his commitment to running that fund as an institutional grade product, even when you only have $30,000 in assets, because we were never trying to appeal Um, to crypto-native people or tech people. We were trying to appeal to institutions, sophisticated investors, high-net-worth individuals from the traditional world. So we needed to run a strategy that was scalable, legal, all the things that they need, but they were not there yet. Um, So his experience at Citadel, Merrill, Lehman, running fixed-income portfolios, um, esoteric fixed-income portfolios, by appointment only, was probably some of the most appropriate experience in the world. And then it comes also down to his motor and team building. Um, The guy produces a weekly newsletter. Um, We've been writing monthly investor letters when we were the only LP. Um, You know, this is the type of commitment and effort. And he's as great as he is at portfolio management, risk management, and all of those things. He's actually a better team builder, identifier of talent, um, and organizer than even that. It it would be impossible to do this without him. Uh, My other co-founder is Phil Liu. Um, who's our chief legal officer, uh, who was at Manette. Uh, he was a security structure at HSBC. Um, I, can, I can say, in actuality, really one of the best business and legal minds together, which you really need a flexible mind to address this. And he was responsible for creating our first regulated structure, ARCOIN, the ARCO US Treasury Fund, you know, which is a short duration treasury fund in a 40-act structure on the Ethereum blockchain. This is revolutionary. This is, it was the first one in July, and still nothing has been done in that because it's so hard. Um, he has kept us in front of every legal and regulatory uh, change. We've always treated everything we dealt with like a security, even things that weren't. So always trying to stay to the highest threshold. Um, that part of the business is regulated by the SEC. So we're directly under the purview of the SEC. You know, this is a, a very expensive proposition, you know, taking on that type of... Regulation, but we embrace it because the clients were trying to attack. So, that nucleus of regulatory and legal, um, investment practice, and distribution on my side, that core group um, really informed it. And then we have other people that have been absolutely key um, Peter Hans in distribution. Um, so, the institutional grade distribution experience that people receive um, at the fund, uh, that's because of him. He's an ex CEO of Harvest, um, you know, also used to run a um, regulatory practice called Height Analytics, You know, consulting with active managers on policy. Um, David Nage um, has been running our family office practice and doing an educational event for family offices for over three years. Uh, the portfolio, I mean, I could go on and on, yeah. um, but the team is is that deep. Um, there's, we're not 40 people. Every one of them is like a, a true all-star at many places, um, but in the interest of time, <laughs> I'll stop there. Yeah.
1: I find it really interesting because in this new world, like people are talking about like the death of the corporation and what I think you're seeing is almost like a mirror image of – and not to pump your tires too much, but like the super teams in NBA where it's like you see <laughs> talented people and you want to play with them and you realize that you can scale something with a small group of, uh, of really smart people and it's kind of reshaping what it means to kind of like
0: be a corporation, is is my guess. But we'll see. I, I think that yeah, I think there's something there. I can't speak to um, other industries outside of digital assets. I can tell, I can tell people that of talent um, and ambition, and that want to do something in this space or that are adjacent to this space. This is a space where, this is potentially. You know if the thesis plays out like what the internet did for information you know making it ubiquitous free and then all the things that came from it this is a similar similar transformation in size and scale if you're talking about the transfer of value making value transfer and the alignment of uh, stakeholders um free and ubiquitous and decentralized is just as transformative as as that and we're early stage and if you are the type of person uh, that has talent you know experience that is very applicable in this space. And there is still not a lot of competition. Um, You know, the world we come from, you know, traditional financial services is very well compensated. Um, You know, it's not typically risk takers that are in it, they're typically risk averse, they have great jobs and a lot of money, but you're starting to see the pendulum swing in them looking around. And if you can find a core group um, that addresses this, um, there, there. You can really can do great things uh, in this space, and, and actually, very quickly. It's very scalable, like you said.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your treasury fund? Because the more I uh, kind of think about what you know, digital assets are, Bitcoin, and it, what they are to me is like a reserve asset, and what mm. that means to me is like it's what treasuries serve as a purpose um, to the financial system, where it's like. You can convert it really easily into cash. So, yeah. how does how does the forty ACK fund that you guys launched fit into that? Does that advance like U.S. dollar interests?
0: It's so the way we thought about it was, and this is one of the the difficult things or challenges, or just you know the price of doing business in regulated products is you have very long lead times. Um, so, we conceived of that fund in probably May or June of eighteen. Um, went to the regulators in November of 18 didn't get exemptive relief to November of last year uh, not November July of last year so July of 2020. so about almost two years um, of development and product and the concept of this while the first one is really to do with treasuries and it's really to address you know the need for a stable asset in this place but backed by the highest credit that the traditional world is associated with Um, what we think is the very interesting thing is the actual structure. So this is a structure that's similar to the ETF. We actually call it the BTF, um, that is just as flexible as an ETF. You can put anything in it that you can put in an ETF, but at its full, um, expression would be, you know, non-exchange peer to peer able to be traded in any size 24 seven, um, at a very cheap cost. So that same advantage that ETFs brought over four PM closed mutual funds with intraday liquidity and other savings. Um, and some of the things that grew out of that active ETFs, leveraged ETFs, you know, inverse uh, ETFs or shorting out currency exposures, things that were not really conceived of in the early 90s. You know, that's that's when ETFs were created and how long it took to get here. Um, that's That's what we see coming out of this structure. So we see a very specific use for actual treasuries and it's mostly in use cases where incumbent players need treasuries or need treasuries as collateral, or there's some sort of benefit from using treasuries. Those are the early adopters of this, where they can see some benefit of interacting in this ecosystem. But then the pipes that we're laying, we think we can run any asset management product in that wrapper. Um, so that's that's the longer term plan. And,
1: and you're the only ones that have done this so far, correct? Correct. Yeah. I mean coming from the legacy world where there's just like billions of dollars of cash sitting around, you have to invest it in treasuries. Like it, it seems like I, th- I would have thought there was more, there'd be more of these out there, but like to your point, I guess the lead time really
0: dissuades. It's the lead time. And also, so just to give you, so we, we got approval exemptive relief and we, the, the SEC has been fantastic to work with on this um, because of the lack of clarity around custody rules for digital assets. We could trade our coin peer to peer, me and you, but we would not be able to have it on an exchange yet, or to have a broker dealer trade it for us on the, the, the account of a third party. Um, just because even though it's a 40x product, you know, there's an SEC custodian of the underlying all of those things, you know, a, a transfer agent, master books and records, that you know, if you lost your R coin, we could recreate it. It's not crypto in, in that sense, but it's still a digital asset as far as the SEC is concerned, and they have not clarified those custody rules yet. So it's still not the regulatory environment isn't even there yet to to allow this to scale yet. So mm-hmm. it's that early. I would say if you wanted to look at, it, I like using the ETF a metaphor because I understand it. Yeah. Um, we are we are right around like 1990 um, in ETFs. Um, as far as this thing is concerned. And like, and, and then when you think about that as recently or as 12 years after that, when we started Wisdom Tree, the asset management business was still not sure that ETFs were gonna be a big idea. Like, <laughs> like think about that. You yeah. know, like like $7 million, ET, um, William, <laughs> Wisdom Tree now is like 75 billion under management. Uh, we carried a huge premium, like you said, of all those fast growing ETF providers. Um, it's very hard to create an ETF business, passive things, um, those guys ended up buying them. You know, the traditional people were like, okay, now it makes sense. And that'll probably be the path for a lot of digital asset companies as well. Mm -hmm.
1: And can you talk about, so you decided to basically do an actively managed uh, yield fund in digital assets. Mm -hmm. And what, coming from a passive base, like obviously you chose that for a reason, right? Can you walk through kind of like what that means for the ecosystem in the
0: evolution. Sure, sure. So on our, so basically ARCA is broken into, um, we don't say two arms of the business, but there's two general ones with like kind of different timeframes and mandates. We have ARCA, the ones called ARCA Funds Informally, um, which houses um, the Digital Asset Fund, which is our largest product, which is the one that was started in 18, which is also actively managed. Um, The Digital Yield Fund, Um, a venture fund called Endeavor, which is about to launch. Um, And we're also working on an NFT product. And then on the other side, um, we have ARCA Labs where we're innovating products, either energized by blockchain. um, And this is where um, the the treasury fund lives. So the digital yield fund um, is an offshoot of things that we were doing in the uh, digital assets fund. And this was kind of our belief was we were gonna use that large fund and as this system scaled and certain strategies underneath it became of scale and of interest um, to people, we would launch them. So we have been doing yield farming, staking, um, stablecoin lending and things like that in the digital asset fund as sleeves of it, but we now had the size of the market, the team, and the ability to create that in its product, you know, offering, you know, what in a yield-starved world, you know, 15 to 20% yields with just counterparty and you know, the, this is very interesting to people, but the active management side, this is one of the most interesting things about this, is like you said, I come from a passive world. Uh, when I first looked at this space, I really thought we were gonna be creating uh, indexes um, and creating passive ways to address them. And I actually created a bunch of indexes at the beginning of this um, with that in mind. None of them survived almost more than a month because the space is changing um, so quickly. And it really made me think intellectually why is passive big in the traditional world? It's where the Delta is around fees, taxes, costs, liquidity, and things like that, but not so much around information, asymmetries of access and things like that. It's for a world of of very efficient markets. Uh, The world of digital assets is incredibly inefficient, both in its capital structure, its information flow, even the, even the basic understandings of how value accrues and what we think is valuable, none of this has been determined. It's actually one of those amazing moments for active management where you can really create alpha by doing that. So we're not dogmatic at ARCA. And you kind of have to re-explain this to people because people have become very accustomed to, okay, what's your passive approach to this? And that's how I'm going to access this market. Um, like we're, we, I think we have a 20,000 basis point advantage over our benchmark after fees uh, since launch on the digital asset fund um, there, there you know like if there is no even a index that you would agree is the market is the, is the market bitcoin is the market some split of bitcoin and ethereum is it the market a market cap weighted estimation of all coins market cap is really an idea from the traditional world so none of these things really apply to us but we're we're used to looking at the lens, the world through this lens so a lot of our work has been conditioning Um, our clientele or potential clients to embrace active management, but not doing it in a pushy way. This is how we do it. Please observe us, interact with our team, uh, watch our results. And this is why um, since launch, you know, we're just crossing our three-year anniversary, where I think (laughs) our first year anniversary was like 60,000 in assets. Uh, We entered 2020 with two and a half million in assets. Um, 2021 started with 40 million in assets and now we're at 400. This is now um, our client base um, starting to understand how we do things, getting trust and allocating. The digital yield fund is much better serves clients by being able to target these different opportunities in the yield environment. Sometimes uh, future spot arbitrage is working w- really well. Sometimes stablecoin lending is re- working really well. Sometimes yield farming. Um, it does not serve you to be dogmatic about these things. And it's very hard to make a mechanical um, estimation of it. The world changes so quickly. So we have found being flexible, optionality, allowing this it has really served us well in the digital asset fund. And we think it'll serve our investors well in the digital yield fund too.
1: That is so fascinating because it's kind of like going back into you know the public market in 1980, right? Where you actually had the information yep. asymmetries, you had you know, real, real value uh, generation from just exchanging ideas, I guess. Um, and That's
0: it. People, people did not do all of that just to to not be efficient. For people that are interested in investing this time here in digital assets, where there are these asymmetries of information, where there are real differences that are hard to figure out this for people that are interested in investing. This is one of the most interesting and dynamic spaces I've ever seen. I've never been exposed. You know, I was a kid <laughs> in the 80s when those type of asymmetries were going on in capital markets. I've really only come of age in the time where passive indexing was dominated. This is so exciting for people that love investing.
1: Yeah. It, the way I think about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially, ETFs did to public markets, they just made them so efficient. And on top of that, you have this overlay of like an aging demographic that needs yield. So you even have like, you know, you short volatility and you can create a couple more, you know, maybe a percent or two of of, of yields for, for that generation. And it, it almost creates this market where, you know, yields collapse. And now you're seeing inflation higher than, you know, what you can buy a junk bond at. Yeah. And, and can you talk about the institutions you guys talk to generally speaking? like are they like full-on like okay, now we have to really look at this because you can get 10 to fifteen percent almost like real yields?
0: Yeah, and this this is really you said two interesting things there. Um, the idea that ETFs and passive indexing have made the market so efficient. Um, there's definitely the efficiency of capital allocation to it. But it's one of those intellectual problems, you know, passive indexing um, relies on other active things, somebody doing the work to discover value, um, and driving, um, you know, like for market cap weighted indexes, uh, that are weighted on the size of a company, that you're relying that the investment decisions um, that there's some group, hopefully larger than your passive group that is making active determinations about the value of that company. And then the passive people get to a free ride kind of on that, um, just at lower fee um, and lower transaction costs in there. But we're kind of reaching a problem when the overwhelming amount of the money is passive, and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy on just capital markets. And this was one of even the things that we addressed at Wisdom Tree, even believing in passive, we still said maybe there's alpha to be wrung out by waiting differently, by waiting on dividends, which is just basically a value tilt. So I do see a problem with, you know, uh, <laughs> passive indexing taking over everything. If capital markets are about allocating, you know, capital efficiently to good projects and bad projects, you need some people determining these things at some point for it to work. So. I think that we're reaching a point in that. And then um, on the yield part, um, what's interesting is it's really chicken and the egg. There is no sophisticated investor, really, that you can go to just randomly being like, I have something like a bond fund, it's going to give you 15 to 20%. They'll be like, tell me more. Yes, (laughs) fantastic. Um, But it's based on crypto and stablecoin lending and something called yield farming. And you're in a defined benefit pension plan where you will go to jail if you violate ERISA. So that outside and just as a, a thing is very difficult to talk about. But the fact that it was preceded by um, either investors' direct experience in the digital asset fund, interacting with our team, interacting with ARCA, knowing, them, knowing that we're gaining a reputation for only being best of breed, best of practice here, that, after 12 months to 18 months of interacting with the digital asset fund, hey, we have something that we've been doing in this amount of time. It defines yields like this. Um, There still is counterparty risk and we're very transparent about everything. Um, And that we have a reputation of being transparent. It gives them the comfort to say, yes, I am interested in these type of yields and I have the confidence to address them. But that product just plucked out in a vacuum would probably be very difficult to sell outside of like an ARCA or something like it. Yeah, super fascinating. I
1: I I want to go back to the thing you said about passive sitting on top of active, and Hmm. the market cap weights. I don't know if you've ever heard Mike Mike Green's argument on you know once passive becomes a certain percentage of the market, and you have like a constricting like float of the equity, essentially it creates this convexity of price for you know public equities. Um, yeah. so as BlackRock and Vanguard kind of like get so big and there's really no, like, there's no seller, you don't sell at a higher price. It's creating like these GameStop type short squeezes and, you know, AMC coming from your background. Is that an, is that accurate? Like the market structure really at some scale becomes almost like faulty, I guess.
0: I, I. It seems to me to make sense. Um, this was always an issue of somebody who loved capital markets and the idea of information flow and things like that. There was something, and this was prior to the ETF and the passive industry reaching you know the dominance that it is now. There was something nagging that you always like to think about extremes, you know, when you do things. They're very instructive um, you know, to like <laughs> figure out flaws. In arguments. Yeah. Okay. This is the best thing in the world investing passively. Okay, what if everybody invested passively just like this? And there would be no information flow and what reason and like the, the, then then capital markets as as we conceive them cease to exist because they are not about matching, you know, buyers and sellers of capital for good projects and letting a free market determine its over it's overwhelmed by that. just intellectually, it makes sense. Um, and I think also one of the things that people that are sensitive in digital assets to, um, this idea of a political utility, this is also another thing that allows governments or centralized authorities to very much interact with capital in like an incredibly um, you know distortive way. Uh, when you see what's going on in Japan, Japan's kind of like, you know, these type of things at its ultimate expression, which was once a a very active Japanese government bond market, nothing happens, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a political utility when you have the central bank buying ETFs of all companies in a certain amount, and they're the large holders of it, and you can print infinite money, like, if you can print all the money, and you can buy all the companies, what's (laughs) to stop you from printing all the money and buying all the companies? Nothing. Okay. You know, so it's like these things that they're extreme, they haven't happened yet, but that's – when people say, no, that actually could happen, that's a problem and passive yeah. allows that.
1: And I think that you hit on something with that where my, my guess is now the market structure is too sensitive to actually unwind this. And like, that's why we see once the Fed raises rates, you get these massive shocks, the liquidity yep. shocks, because, yep. you know, coming from, I was I traded for 10 years and only a small percentage of that trading volume, I'd say like 15% is real. Like the rest yep. of it is passive in HFT. So like there's no yep. real buyer at lower prices. And and so yep. I think you're backed by the Fed essentially and the release valve to me and this is what my logic has led me to is digital assets, which is you you are the release valve of of all that you know money that capital will slowly seep out now, and at least there's somewhere
0: to go in in my opinion. Um, I agree, and I think you're seeing it, which is interesting when we talk about like you say market in traditional equities, everybody agrees that it is backstopped by the Fed, mm-hmm. and you have a a market structure here where, it's, Jeff puts this really well, in the traditional world, you have a market with almost no price risk, but incredible and building systemic risk. And then on the digital asset side, you have a market with a lot of price risk, um, as you will in a new, volatile, developing, you know, asymmetric um, type of market, but actually very little systemic risk. And we, we've started to see that, um, like this last drawdown um, in uh, these last couple of months um, was very different than a lot of, you know, the, the general panic <laughs> that overtakes our industry. Um, and you saw things like a lot of uh, stress being put on DeFi protocols um, and lending and money, things like that. And it all worked. Yeah. Nothing broke Um, You know, gas prices got really high. If you wanted to transact, it cost a lot, but that was a market working, you know, Mm -hmm. like in times of stress, if you want liquidity, you're going to have to pay for it, Um, but it doesn't break. So um, a lot of people that was kind of eye opening that this thing that does not have any central control um, that is kind of developing on its own in kind of this evolutionary way is already starting to exhibit robustness. Um, that you don't really get the feel like if the Fed were to withdraw liquidity or even say they were withdrawing liquidity right now, just stopping it, what would happen to this thing? You know, (laughs) Um, there is nothing like that going on in digital assets. I know.
1: And you guys had, I mean, like in Bitcoin specifically, the China decentralization of miners was a very fundamental thing. And it, it naturally is decentralizing power structures there. Yep. But, you know, like you said, it, it all worked. There was no too big to fail bailouts or any of that stuff. It really just like naturally found a level of liquidity. It's a f- raging free market instead of yeah. a political utility. And, you know, I, I, I took that as really bullish. I was like, when when it dipped, I'm like, chances are if the U.S. regulated like really hard now, maybe it would, you know, dip a lot lower. But... It really became a U.S. interest. At that point, it was like, okay, China's out. We can use this to our advantage. Um, And now it almost becomes to me like a a proxy for the U.S. dollar. We are now like advancing U.S. interests um, without even realizing it.
0: it, There are so many different things going on, and that's what I really love about this, that it's so interesting, so dynamic. Um, And that that what you're identifying that lack of that central control aspect of it um, in our so controlled world sometimes feels like almost frustrating or scary because we've grown we've grown accustomed to a world that is just the outcomes are so (laughs) determined, especially like in capital markets that it feels weird. But this is this is the way we kind of envisioned, at least when I thought about markets working. Um, And when you talk about something that's about decentralization of authority and ideas, um, what you give up for in like directing it, you know, coming up like, oh, I'm quite certain this is the correct outcome and here we'll do it. You don't really get to say that (laughs) in digital assets. Um, There has to be like 50 different tries at something. And then evolutionary, it kind of, some die off. It looks a lot more like, you know, the tree of an evolutionary, like organism development, but that you see how robust and healthy life is, how varied it is, and how hard to predict it is. The thing that I say, watch out for in in this space, is anybody that's very, very certain about the future of this space, outside of like a general expansion, um, more than like, honestly, like three to six months out, um, is very difficult to predict. And I I am wary of people that have great certainty about <laughs> what's going to happen, because that it's, it doesn't really go like that in this space, which is nice. I mean, like being an active manager
1: really allows you the ability to capitalize, especially when you see like a large retail chunk. When you have the ability and in longer-term incentives, you can really you know you can use that to your advantage. You know, we saw the deleveraging yeah. from derivatives and stuff like that um, the past couple months, and I, my guess is you guys we the beneficiaries I got to imagine, but, uh, this
0: being active in that space, um, has served us well. doesn't protect you from short term volatility yeah. in this space, but, um, when you have conviction and you get advantage of it, it is, it we've done very well. August is looking great.
1: And so what, what type of products do you see coming down, you know, a year, two years, five years later for ARCA?
0: Sure. Um, Continued uh, diversification and differentiation of the products that the Digital Asset Fund are spawning. So, um, you know, things like DeFi didn't really exist like two years ago, and now it's gigantic. Um, one of our, in, in our sadly, such a short time to mention the fantastic people at ARCA, um, I didn't get down to uh, Sasha Fleischman, um, who's been with us from the beginning. Um, and who is one of the most talented people on the Arca team, but it's only uh, the insane talent of this group uh, that I didn't get there, um, who has been uh, working on an NFT strategy for us from before anybody was talking about NFTs. And this was this concept of NFTs, you know, th- th- these, these are things that didn't even really exist. The idea of pay for play in video gaming. Uh, things like digital land and Axie. The fact that Axie um, is now the third or fourth biggest user of Ethereum gas and Ethereum computing power is mind-boggling. And it wasn't there until recently. So um, the the talent of the team on that side, I really think we're going to continue um, to create differentiated, interesting ways to segment and to give our investors exposure to it and increasingly level you know, of narrowness mm-hmm. as it evolves. Um, and then we're going to continue to create asset management products like the BTF, um, perhaps interesting ways to do passive in a more thoughtful manner, um, more structures um, that are more native uh, to, to the digital asset ecosystem for asset management. Um, all the while, while really adhering to the highest legal regulatory and operational uh things so this is we are kind of the slow and steady uh people in this there is of all those wonderful things i want to launch and do if we don't do another thing aside from literally what we have right now um and execute on it um these are things and strategies that could have multiple tens of billions of capacity um the, the, you know, the BTF structure, literally our coin product has literally trillions of dollars of capacity. Um, Mm. so there is nothing, um, that we would even have to innovate and just keep executing. All of those things though could go away if we did anything hasty or careless or, um, you know, thoughtless with the ARCA brand and what our investors have come to think about us. So the impetus and the, um, weight is always on being careful and good stewards of capital, and that's sometimes even the idea of it. Even if somebody wasn't in a bad idea, if it makes somebody question the way you think or do about things at Arca, that is a powerful negative, um, you know, signal in a world where there's just a lot of uncertainty. So there's so much more on the the side of uh, the equation just saying steadily doing things correctly. Um, and then one other product we haven't mentioned, or just an idea, is this idea of uh, of governance, and you know what we're working on with Matt uh, that you mentioned, um, and governance being one of the foundations of blockchain. you know mm. the distribution of making decisions and how you divvy up power structures and do this in real time and in financial products is fascinating, and it goes right to the heart of you know blockchain's value proposition and when you talk about people concerned in esg products um people spend a lot of time on the e uh, a little bit of time on the s and governance is like are there diverse people on your board great and that's diverse governance you know um this is a this is a governance revolution uh blockchain so there's super interesting things to go on there if you hadn't followed it what went on in sushi um you know real governance in real time in a decentralized protocol that we were involved in with other great partners. This is fantastic stuff. So I see a lot of things happening in the governance side as well.
1: Yeah, you really get held accountable. One of the, uh, I watched this great interview with this guy named Tariq Fancy. He was the head of ESG at BlackRock and he left because he was like, this is a complete hoax. Like. I, I'm not doing anything good for the world. We're just, we're putting, you know, essentially like what ESG is to these giant mega institutions is it's just like the cigarette industry did in like the 1970s when it was just trying to like give the Heisman to, uh, you know, regulation regulators to give them away from regulating. It's like, we care about our client, you know, we're going to do ESG and, this is the guy who was ran ESG at BlackRock saying this, and he had to leave because he's like, "This is not what's happening." You're gonna have
0: to share that with me, um, yeah. but that's that I I totally get it. And this is the asset management business is about selling products, um, ESG, and this is the problem. This is a problem for asset management, but also a problem for our society and world. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of depth and doing your own work and relying on people. There is nothing wrong with a desire for impact investing to have your environmental, social and governance concerns at the core of your investing. And there's probably even, um, I'm, I'm suspicious of the data on like um, the correlation between these things, because like you say, so many things are said as ESG. What is ESG? It's a buzzword or not. So um, that desire, you have to do work. So what we're encouraging people at ARCA, we're not saying any of our things are ESG we're not saying digital assets are ESG. We are saying that if you're interested in those components, there are probably not a more interesting space than the digital assets ecosystem. There's the environmental debate on the carbon footprint of Bitcoin, pro or con. There's the social impact of democratizing ac- access to capital um, and you know disaggregating you know power structures, and then there's the governance aspect of really for the first time changing the way we do governance at corporations, what is a corporation, like you said. Um, so like good-meaning and well-meaning people can have very, very strong opinions on either side of those things, and I think have a lot of evidence for them. But we like that. Robust debates about these things, not being like, I want to be ESG investing. Let's find this, I won't pick on my friends at BlackRock, ESG offering from BlackRock, whatever that means you so you to do the work <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly the uh the so social benefit of everybody sitting around consuming content
1: yeah god it's it's really funny what what it's turned into but um i i could completely agree i think that's a huge piece one last question for you a big macro question is how does this giant gap in inequality and you know money printing for the past 10 years has basically I think you know not to put words in your mouth but I think it's basically created a huge uh, gap in society does that reset as money comes into digital assets what is your big macro picture here
0: this is hard um, I think it's very difficult to see the way all of this plays out there's when people are concerned about social inequality and things like that, it's hard to argue that the way we're creating money, the way our financial systems run, the way access to capital, the way all these structures are in place right now, um, do not um, energize that discrepancy. The haves get more and the have nots less. It's the trend we're on. Um, digital assets, at its full expression, does answer. Some of these questions um, in theory, but it's all about how things are executed. Um, and also, you know, power structures that are in place and that ruthlessly aggregate power um, don't generally go quietly um, away. Um, so I think you are going to see, um, you know, it, even when we're talking about something like Bitcoin um, and the China uh, US issue and like now being a proxy for the US dollar. Mm hmm. At some point though, um, the if it really does um, threaten control or the ability to print money or price debt, um, you're probably gonna get a pretty strong impetus to regulate Bitcoin in a certain mm-hmm. way. So it is unclear um, the path on, of these things, but what I would say is we're starting to see the fragility of it all, um, especially, and I think the lockdown um, and pandemic has you know hastened that. So you know to see real social unrest in this country um, fairly recently in large scale. I, I don't, even though it was around you know social issues, but a lot of social issues are around um, you know again haves and have-nots, discrepancy of power, wealth, um, things like that. So this constant money printing kicking the can down the road that if that were limitless, sure, we, why not just do it forever? It seems <laughs> never to have been limitless. I think digital assets are showing people that there is stuff outside of this system um, that is interesting, innovative, offers potential solutions. My gut is that this is going to be very messy though um, when all of this goes sideways, there's, there's not even, I'm a huge believer in digital assets. I, I do not think that there's going to be a smooth transition from a structured, you know, incredibly sided distribution of assets to, um, you know, a fair, everything working correctly, uh, type of thing. Just, just quickly. Mike's, ex- I read a lot of history and I think everybody should, mm-hmm. um, you know, at times the stress you see the fabric of our societies gets pulled. Um, and some of the interesting work that Ray Dalio does on, um, I think it was political instability or it, w- it was interesting. It was index- They somehow indexed um, the amount of, um, I think it was debt to GDP, maybe? No, not debt to GDP. No. It was, it was political, um, you know, extremism. Yes. Uh, wow. Measured through like the dominance of extreme arms of different parties and thoughts, and wow. it was fascinating that right now and I, I haven't looked at it in a little bit. We're at a higher level of political extremism than the outbreak of World War Two, um, and so you know this is everything looks fine until these type of things break. But we're definitely in a situation where we're putting a lot of stress in the system, and it probably won't end. Uh, easily or comfortably. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you there.
1: But, uh, you know, having a longer term view, it, I don't know. I, I have to think that this new system that's being built has real, you know, it, I think we're really moving from that fourth turning into the first turning. And oh, yes. New institutions. I agree. I wouldn't built. be doing
0: this. Yeah. And it's Sorry. really awesome yeah.
1: seeing long term incentives actually coming back because. You know, in a world of let's beat next quarter, I think we've done that for 10 years and it's kind of led to the secular stagnation and no and yeah. one wants to really grow for the future. So,
0: and when I, people I, wonder about like why the environment, why it's hard to focus on things like climate change, or we're talking about a world where we've focused ruthlessly, like you say, on the short term. And then you're asking people to plan and allocate for the long term when you've been ruthlessly punished for that? Like, <laughs> how is that supposed to work? All the incentives are for you to think incredibly short-term right now. This th- That is one of my favorite things about this um, and that I constantly remind our team because it's, it's ironic in a space as volatile and changeable as digital assets, only the excellence of my portfolio team and all of that, the people that do that, that allow <laughs> me to be like, what's the long-term trend and to be able to think long term but this is a value proposition that is about encouraging long-term thoughts and getting the proper structures that can align incentives how do you get the incentives where you only see them show up long term how do you create a system that rewards stuff now digital assets is actually something that can do that um you still have to have enough adoption and people to do all this stuff but it actually can do it you can create incentives and behavioral structures and actually tokens that, you know, find some sort of long-term result that you're measuring and rewarding for and create you know, economic incentives to do it. We're actually doing it. It's pretty amazing.
1: Tell me about the scaling at Wisdom Tree, because you you said people didn't care about passive for, for a long time. And then all of a sudden you started getting these network effects. Yeah. What point is ARCA on that is it, is it
0: faster because I guess much faster knowledge is better faster. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's faster in this regard. Um, the economics of this, uh, the wisdom tree business for scaling for low fee, passive products, you really need incredibly large, um, amounts of capital, um, to make money, um, to be self-sufficient, all those things in this space because the potential for return is so asymmetric um, here at the beginning. Um, And there's so much differentiation, especially from the way we do it. There's a huge white space um, for people that are doing long-term fundamental valuation of these projects that nobody's thinking about it like that. So there's this entire institutional uh, client base that is thirsty for this type of product from companies that can deliver on risk, all of these things, but it's it's incredibly undermet, and then the profitability is incredible. Yeah. So, at, from yeah. a much smaller base, we are we are at scale, making money, and mm-hmm. it supports what we're doing on the longer term things like the digital asset side. That we can afford to be patient there, not have to rush anything. We don't have to rely on that to make money. Um, we can do things correctly, work with the regulators. For three months on something that might not go anywhere because you don't know. It gives us the optionality to do things correctly. So we're scaling um, in a probability sense much faster. We're also probably growing asset-wise because of the asymmetric (laughs) return uh, faster as well. Um, So all of those things are allowing us to grow um, faster than a wisdom degree.
1: And I got to just hammer this home to to the audience, but in a world where in public equities you have basically businesses that are set up to lose money like you you're you're growing revenues but you're growing expenses a lot more in digital assets you have cash flow positive businesses with pricing power that are just like in my opinion rocket ships and and no one yeah. wants to pay attention it's it's mind-blowing yeah. to me
0: and yeah you have things yeah like things like uh, insurance companies like lemonade and things like that in the traditional world that are like <laughs> 10X enterprise value. Yeah. Like, um, you know, Nexus Mutual that's trading at book value. And it's growing, (laughs) fastest growing, no expenses, pricing power, um, network effects, aligning your policy holders or your evangelists. That's what Jeff loves about this. If you want to talk about a growth area, the ability to align stakeholders for like the difference between like a Binance and a Coinbase. Coinbase was all centralized. Binance had a token. The BNB token allowed investors to get trading fee reduction, to participate in the revenues of the business, and a token burn. Do you know what Binance people became? They became super evangelists for Binance, um, and they were incentivized to. And it was it was correct. Um, the same way you know you get a lot of companies that become huge um, off of giant uh, user bases and employee bases that do not participate. There's ways to design tokens for things like Uber and DoorDash where a massive amount of that value creation accrues to the people that actually make the network valuable and for and you're more incentivized to be an early network provider and you you get more of it then. This is the thing that that's how things like SushiSwap, Uniswap are becoming so big is because you're incentivized to be a user and rewarded for evangelizing and using—that's, that, I mean, it's like so simple, but yeah, yeah.
1: Like, it's, people it's blocked it out of their heads for years and years and years, and now yeah. it's you know, it's fascinating trying to get them back thinking like that. Uh, and you know, Dan Tapiero, I, I talked with you know a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, these businesses spew cash flow on on cash flow, but like it's still not, I guess kosher to invest in for the legacy financial world. And I think we're at this, you know, auspicious 50K on on Bitcoin where people are like, okay, now we, we're going to be forced to like really get into this because these are really fast-growing scalable businesses with pretty much a limitless ceiling, right?
0: Um, I, I think so. If the thesis continues to expand, there's a, you're talking about a transformation of corporate structure all incentive alignment. Um, there's things you know, like we think. Look at the world through the world of equity and debt. It's kind of like a limitless ability to align things here. You're not just limited to debt, equity, loyalty. There's all sorts of structures that can be that can be made. It really is a new frontier for like capital and the way we you know organize productive behavior. So mm-hmm. what what's the what's the limit on the organizing productive behavior? Um, the most efficient way possible that energizes good products in a market way. Isn't this what the financial system is supposed to be doing? Allocating capital as efficiently as possible. It doesn't feel like that's what's been going on before, but I really feel that we actually have that ability now.
1: Well, Rain, on that note, Thank you so much. This is uh, really just uh, a master class, like I said. So appreciate you coming in in, in a year when you guys are tw- 10 exercise. I'm going to still make you come back and do this again.
0: I will always come back to see you, Tyler. This was always fun. Thank you so much. And thank you for your enthusiastic coverage of this space. It's, it's fantastic and necessary and uh, yeah. really, really terrific.
1: It's, uh, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks again.